I'm Congressman Bruce Westerman, and this is Conserve Nation. Join me as we get back to our roots, being good stewards of what we have for a brighter tomorrow. Well, greetings and welcome to Conserve Nation. This is our uh, podcast on conservation issues. We got a very exciting show today. I'm Congressman Bruce Westerman. I'll be hosting this uh, podcast, and we're going to talk about Western ranching, and we've got three very special guests who are all members of the uh, Beef Cattlemen's Association, and they uh, have firsthand experience of what it's like, you know, from Wyoming to Nevada to Colorado, uh, the issues that they face and the conservation practices that they put in place. I'm really excited to uh, to get into this show today and, and hearing from our guests. And I want to just uh, let everyone introduce themselves, start with uh, Nels Hansen from uh, from Wyoming. Nels, if you'll tell us a little bit about yourself and about your operation. Yeah, thank you, Congressman. Um, my name is Nels Hansen. I, we run a family operation here in uh, South Central Wyoming. We're just about the center of the state, east west, and approximately 50 miles north of the Colorado border. We're uh, a ranch that's uh, a little over uh, over 120 years old. <clears throat> my family's been here. I, I, excuse me. My sister and I are third generation on the ranch, and uh, we uh, started out as a remount horse and cheap operation, and have evolved into currently we're running a cow calf operation and a, a yearling soccer operation, and uh, we've been uh, we run on high desert here, uh, both sides of the continental divide, so we uh, deal with a lot of those issues. And uh, our ranch is all inside of the railroad land grant, the Union Pacific land grant. So we are in the heart of the checkerboard land system and dealing with, uh, so we deal with BLM and the regulations and NEPA and everything almost every day. Yeah, well, look forward, look forward to hearing more about your operation, Nels. And uh, I, can, I can tell you all in the audience that uh, I've got a little bit of experience as a cattle farmer. Uh, but totally different experience from what you all have. I had a small cow-calf operation uh, on my, my small farm back in Arkansas, but from my FFA days and the, the creed where it says, I know the joys and discomforts of agricultural life, uh, I've, I've got a full taste of that and what it's like when, uh, when you get drought, when you have to start feeding hay early, and uh, just how tough it is to, to be in that business. I want to give uh, JJ Gorgachia, hope I said that right, JJ, uh, from out in, in Nevada, a chance to introduce yourself and tell about uh, your operation. Thank you, Congressman, and you did. Uh, you, you said that just about perfectly. Uh, it's good to hear you were in the FFA as well from a former state president here in Nevada. Uh, we like the blue and the gold. So uh, I'm a fourth generation uh, public lands rancher here in Nevada. Uh, my great grandfather, uh, settled in this valley, in, in Newark Valley, in north central Nevada, uh, when he came over from Spain. He originally came over uh, with some brothers, and they were herding sheep up in northern Nevada, and then he ended up down here. And we always like to joke, he must have just ran out of horses, and that's why we stopped here. But uh, we are here, uh, and, and my daughters will be the fifth generation. Uh, we're running cow-calf operation now, just have a few sheep uh, to kind of keep their tradition alive and going. We run on a mix of private and, and public, that includes both Forest Service uh, and the BLM. 
Uh, I am in the heart of some of the biggest wild horse HMAs uh, that you can imagine out here. So we deal with everything just as Nels does from uh, NEPA to wild horses, to fire, to drought. And a year like this, a lot of my neighbors are buying $250 a ton hay to feed those cows early because of that drought and because hay was in short supply. So uh, it's not always easy, but we don't do it because it's easy. We do it because we love it. Yeah. And uh, I can testify to that, JJ. You know, what, if you don't mind me asking, what year were you uh, president of the FFA? Uh, I was president of the FFA in uh, 91, sir. Okay, well, I was the Arkansas State President in 1986, so uh, uh, great experience the there. Yep, yes, probably, probably attended some conventions together. Uh, next, I want to go sure to uh, Robbie LaValle. Uh, Robbie's got an operation in Colorado. Robbie, tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation. Thank you, you're on mute. Good afternoon, Congressman. Thank you so much for the opportunity. We are a cow-calf operation in Western Colorado, uh, more of the central area, again, high desert, similar to what Nails explained here. We are a mix of uh, public and private with the cow-calf and primarily have a Bureau of Land Management land as well as private and then lease uh, work uh, directly with uh, the Colorado Parks and Wildlife for additional land near the Gunnison um, sage grouse area that we are uh, intimately involved in and been involved with since 1995. Uh, in addition, we also have taken our marketing the next step and along with five other ranches own a USDA packing plant and retail store where we take our uh, beef that we produce locally and sell it direct to consumers here in Colorado. Thank you. Thank you, Robbie. Now, uh, you know, I'm from a rural place. Probably a lot of our listeners are from rural areas, but some may be from more urban areas. And I've always said the original uh, conservationists are uh, farmers and ranchers and uh, outdoorsmen people who enjoy outdoor activities. And you understand growing up on a farm that if you don't take care of the land, that in the future, the land is not going uh, to take care of you. And I know with some of the policies that have been pushed, especially the beef industry has been uh, villainized uh, by some of these policies saying that, you know, beef is a huge contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and it's just been, I think, a, an attack that's unfounded on science. And it's also uh, an attack from people who don't understand uh, ranching and the benefits that come from ranching, not just for, uh, for cattle and for the, the cattle operators, but for the wildlife that benefits from that uh, as well. So I've, uh, I'm from Arkansas. We're the uh, claim to be the duck hunting capital of the world. And I got to do a little duck hunting uh, over the Christmas break. It's talking to some private landowners and, uh, and, and farmers who are, who are managing the land there. And I think it's a great example. And I'm, I'm gonna talk in terms of ducks, but I wanna give you all a chance to talk in terms of sage grouse or other animals, other, other birds. Uh, the best duck hunting in Arkansas, you're gonna find it on private land where the landowners have managed uh, to uh, have more ducks 
while along with their farming operation, they set land aside for uh, rest areas. And, uh, and, and we're different in Arkansas because we're not as much federal land as, as you are out west. Uh, but these private operators, private landowners play a critical role in habitat to create better uh, wildlife and hunting opportunities. So using that as a kind of a starting point, um, why don't y'all jump in and talk about some of the management activities on your, your ranches that are not just beneficial to the cattle industry, but also help out with uh, wildlife. Who wants to go first on that? I'll jump in first. Uh, we again, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, we have the Gunnison sage grouse, which is listed as a threatened species. And uh, similar to the greater sage grouse, there's been a tremendous amount of work, both at the local and the state and the national level, on, on that, not only from a habitat standpoint, but also uh, strictly from the, the bird numbers as well. But when you look at what the animal, the bird actually needs, then you know that it needs cover, you know that it needs forbs, which are primarily the flowering species, whether it be more so the weed portion or the flower portion, that's what they need. And when you look at rangeland health as a whole, and we look at that ability to capture carbon, it needs that active management. And the active management is what we as, as public land permittees, as private landowners, whether it be Arkansas or Colorado or Nevada or Wyoming, do so well. It's that active management, that eyes on the ground and boots on the ground that are constantly looking at the grass to say, okay, it is time to manage for this species and for wildlife as a whole. And in turn, that provides for that higher nutrition for our beef cattle and our sheep. Yeah, you, you point out some great things there, Robbie. And I, I talk about this in forestry management a lot. When you're talking about natural systems, a hands-off approach, a, a do-nothing decision is a management decision because this landscape is going to change. If you try to set it aside in a preserve and, and don't touch it, uh, something's going to happen. And with forest, not only have we, uh, implemented policies that try to preserve the forest. We've then gone in and said, we're gonna put fires out when they start. And now we're seeing these catastrophic wildfires in the West. Same thing happens with rangeland. If you just try to set it aside, uh, make it wildlife habitat, and you're, you're playing with the management there, uh, especially when you start putting out fires and uh, you have invasive species, both plants and, and animals there that uh, when you're actively managing, you keep that in, in much better control. Um, Nails? Congressman, I'll just dovetail that just yeah. a little bit, you know, and, and Robbie hit on that. And, and I think that's one of the key things that we're missing a lot uh, in our conversations with those who don't understand what we do. That role in, in preventing those large catastrophic fires. You know, we're reducing some of that fuel out there. Uh, we've become better and better at targeted and strategic grazing. We know when to hit it, as Robbie said, when it's time to move, maybe where we need to do a little more grazing because we have the buildup of some of these invasive species. And, the, and then, you know, you talk about the livestock industry and cattle in particular getting a bad rap for greenhouse gases. But what we're forgetting to, to tell everyone is that 
you know, our healthy rangelands are actually carbon sinks. Those deep roots and those healthy plants and the way we maintain those rangelands, they're putting carbon back into that ground. And you're not going to find anybody that's doing a better job for the environment than, than ranchers who are taking care of it every day. And that mix of public private out here in the West is a prime example of that. Yeah, great point there, JJ. And, uh, you know, sometimes I think in this country, we, we cut off our nose to spot our face and for some reason, people want to go after the very uh, the folks that are doing the the hard work and and scratching out a living out there on on some of these lands, and they're actually helping the environment along the way and doing a critical are making critical contributions to the food supply of our country. You know, right now there's a lot of empty uh, supermarket shelves around the country, and the last thing we need to be doing is driving more ranchers and and farmers out of uh, out of production and honestly, some of these policies would do that. Uh, Nels, on your, your operation there in, in Wyoming, uh, do, you, uh, do you have hunting there as well or uh, wildlife? Tell me about the wildlife and um, maybe some of the, the things that go along with the ranching uh, there on your, your operation. Yeah, we, uh, we do have uh, wildlife. We, uh, uh, the way we're spread out across the, uh, the divide and, and with the interstate, we have multiple antelope herds uh, and uh, multiple antelope hunt areas. The same for mule deer. We have multiple areas for there. And we have uh, multiple um, areas. We have a little of everything in every corner of the operation. And uh, uh, we are right in an area where uh, we're a critical winter habitat for elk. So it's uh, when the winter starts getting a little tough, the mountains start snowing up in, in Colorado and southern Wyoming, we'll have uh, uh, elk come and move into our area and onto our operation. It's not unusual to go out on one piece that's about 15 miles out of our hometown here and uh, see 1,500, 2,000, 2,500 head of elk grazing on our ground. So we, uh, we have a lot of wildlife. We have a, a very active hunting population that comes in here. Uh, so we're uh, we're pretty pretty aggressive that way. And to address what uh, you know, JJ and Robbie have talked about, we do the same thing here. Our environments are slightly different, but we we put in rotation systems. We've done a lot of uh, development in here so we can uh, keep a tighter control on the livestock to keep them in the areas where they should be at the right time and out of those areas at the wrong time. And and uh, uh, with the uh, issues of trying to get help anymore, uh, we've dealt with it by building uh, uh, wildlife-friendly uh, electric fences. Fences that when a deer or antelope come along, it'll just lay down and let them by. But the, when we put a little uh, power to it, when the livestock's in the area, that stops the livestock from uh, breaching the fence. Everything's, yeah. everything's aimed at being uh, wildlife and, and uh, uh, friendly to the natural resources. Yeah, I've had an opportunity to do a little traveling out west, uh, some with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and others. And you know, it's, it's, not, it's neat to be driving along and they point out a, a meadow and maybe some forest service land that's not managed properly or BLM land. And, and then they show you where, where all the elk congregate are, are down on the, the rangelands and uh, on the, the pasture land that's, that's been managed. And it just is a prime example of how good management is good for wildlife. Now, when you're out there in those, those big open spaces, 
some folks might think, well, what does Washington, D.C. have to do with, with anything that's happening out here on the ranch? Uh, but we know that policies like, like NEPA, like the Endangered Species Act, uh, they do have an impact on your, your daily operations. We had a hearing this morning, I'm on the Transportation Infrastructure Committee about the waters of the U.S. Uh, we all talk a little bit about how policies in D.C. affect what happens uh, with your operations out on the ranch. I'll defer to Robbie or JJ on this. All right, Robbie. When we think about the policies, whether it be NEPA or WOTUS or any other policy that comes down from DC, uh, it, they all we know have good intentions uh, for the most part, but it is that devil in the details and the implementation and the interpretation that often uh, gets hung up at the local level or even at the, at the state level. And then, like I always like to tell people, we as the permittee are the ones that have to deal with that cumulative impact of not only the regulation from the BLM or the Fish and Wildlife Service or the forest or the NRCS or the Bureau of Rec or um, in a number of host of others, we are the ones that deal with it as a cumulative impact. And so uh, you can have the same NEPA project that has to be evaluated by different NEPA sources because it's different agencies, but you are still the permittee that is dealing with that at the local level and having to um, respond to not only the requests for information, but also then defend your management because someone has read a soundbite somewhere that talks about uh, the impact of ag on greenhouse gas and, and that needs to be in their NEPA document and you're constantly in that defense posture to defend what you're doing, even though you know your good management has stood the test of time, and again, is good for not only the livestock, but the wildlife as well. Yeah, uh, JJ, I saw you were, uh, I think gonna offer some insight on that question as well, but how does that affect you out in, in Nevada, the DC policies? Sure. Well, Congressman, you know, as, as you're aware, I'm sure Nevada is the largest federal land state uh, that there is. And when you've got 87% of our state regulated by or overseen by federal agencies, everything you guys do in Washington, D.C. Uh, comes into play with us here in Nevada. Uh, you know, you talked about your WOTUS hearing that you had this morning. We're the most mountainous state in the nation. We're also the driest state in the nation. So any of this water that does run off these mountains, it's, it's gonna go somewhere, uh, obviously. And it's pretty dang important to us. It's pretty critical that we take care of that water and do what's right by it. And I'm very concerned of where we might be going with some new rules on waters of the United States. I don't wanna go back to where we were as an example in Nevada, Rye Patch Reservoir on the Humboldt uh, Basin. That was deemed a, a, you know, a protective water under WOTUS, and not because it's navigable, but because it had a interstate commerce tie and the way they got to that was you could come in from out of state buy a fishing license and catch a fish out of rye patch therefore that was interstate commerce and so it was regulated before so any water that runs into that humboldt river and down the rye patch if we're not careful is going to end up being that way whether it only runs once every hundred years and so we deal with that all the time and those are things we worry about our stock ponds uh, our streams our seeps 
uh, all of that stuff all up and down northern Nevada. Yeah, and uh, you know this, we we keep playing ping pong with these laws here in in D.C. You have the Obama administration that uh, was pushing a really strict WOTUS rule. The Trump administration came in, and I thought we had had a good WOTUS rule in place. Now the Biden administration is wanting to go back more to the Obama uh, era WOTUS rule. Uh, that makes it tough to run a business. It makes it tough to plan for the future. And, uh, you know, I, I've got ideas on how the WOTUS rule needs to be settled. Um, but even if it's not settled in the way I want to see it, it needs to be settled so that you can have certainty and know uh, how, to, how to move forward. Uh, Nels, did you have anything you wanted to add about uh, federal regulations on, on your operation? <laughs> Nowhere to start or stop. Uh, the WOTUS, uh, I defer to, to Robbie and, and JJ because they deal with uh, more running water than I do. On the high desert here, the majority of our operation, we, we operate in a, a, about a, a 8 to 10 inch annual precip zone. So uh, we don't have the running water uh, sources that they do. So WOTUS is definitely critical to us, but uh, not as much as theirs. Uh, NEPA is certainly the one that really jumps up uh, and uh, affects us the most. Uh, every time we want to do something because of our land pattern, we want to go out and, and develop a new water source. If we have to cross BLM to get there, or if we want to run a little piece of pipe, even if we, we just want to run a two-inch uh, pipeline across the uh, corner, uh, we have to go through full NEPA to in order in order to develop the water on our own operation. Uh, I had reports from neighbors here this past summer that were needing to haul water out because their natural sources had uh, dried up with these dry conditions we've been dealing with, and they uh, couldn't get through the NEPA in order to take a truck out and, and haul water out to, to the uh, livestock and the wildlife. And people forget that, yeah, we're hauling water to wildlife, but, or to livestock, but the wildlife's out there uh, benefiting from it also. So that's certainly the... the big one on on us yeah and it's almost like we've forgotten there's this thing called common <laughs> sense uh in applying these these laws nobody as i said earlier nobody wants to destroy the land because you know that that's important for future uh, generations it's important to your livelihood uh, i can give you an example there's a lot of forest service land in my district back in arkansas and i got into an issue with a a church that the Forest Service claimed was on their property, even though the, the tombstones in the graveyard were older than the Forest Service itself. Uh, but they were under the, the NEPA guidelines of the Forest Service and they, they couldn't cut a dead tree down that was uh, you know, gonna fall on the, the church building. They couldn't do anything to disturb the, the soil. And we ended up having to go through a land transfer it took two years after we passed a law in Congress to swap three acres for six acres. Uh, so sometimes these agencies can just be uh, overburdensome and unreasonable uh, to operate with, even when you get a law passed uh, in Congress. We're gonna go ahead and, and wrap up, but I wanted to give you all an opportunity to um, maybe, uh, you know, I, I think where you live, some of the most beautiful places in the country, but maybe share some place that, uh, that you like to go when you're not on the ranch, and then uh, one thing that you would suggest Congress could do to make life better uh, on the ranch and for conservation. And uh, Robbie, we'll start with you. Um, maybe where's your favorite place other than your ranch? Oh gosh, 
I've, uh, I love to be fishing in Alaska. So that would be one place I really like to, to go if I'm not here. And, and I love to fish here too, but uh, I certainly have enjoyed some of those trips. So uh, if there was uh, one thing that I would suggest, it would be to put the reasonableness back into the NEPA process. Not every uh, action by an agency needs to have that exhaustive NEPA uh, consult that just adds layers and then adds, again, potential litigation. So it is to, uh, again, work on those Council for Environmental Quality standards as well as scaling back NEPA for those major impacts, not the day-to-day -day projects that we need to do to continue the active management on not only our public lands, but uh, improving our private lands for that holistic approach to management for both livestock and wildlife. Great, great answer. And uh, it would be nice if we could do that. We constantly work on those those kinds of issues here in, in DC. JJ, your favorite place other than, than your ranch and uh, what, what do you think we could do better out here? Well, I guess my favorite place would be uh, I, I like to go look at the Pacific Ocean. I wish I could find a way to do it and not have to go to one of my neighboring states for, for other reasons. But uh, it's, it's nice to just sit there and look out there at that water and think about other things other than the desert and other than cows. Um, but as far as things that, that you guys can do, you know, Rob, Robbie hit it uh, right on. We've got to find a way to really lessen this regulatory burden uh, out here on us. And, and then what you said about the whole ping pong thing. You know, as we change administrations and we change Congress, it seems that we get stuck in the middle out here, especially on these public land ranchers. And, and we're just, you know, we're trying to make this living and we're, and we're trying to do what's right. One thing, Congressman, you know, you talk about you've toured some with the uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and those. I think I speak for all three of us. We would love to have you and anyone else wanted to come out and look around and really see what we do and help us carry that message back to others who don't understand what the public land ranching west does and these how we maintain these open spaces recreationists uh, outdoorsmen hunting fishing everybody they get to enjoy a few days of the year i'm sure people are going to tell you they like to come to nevada and hunt when they're not at their regular job well we're here 362 days out of the year we'll take three off and go somewhere else but uh, they need to understand that they can come and enjoy that because of what we're doing here every day mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, I'd love to get out and visit uh, more. Maybe I'll make, make it out to your ranch sometime, uh, JJ. And I've found nothing tells a story like seeing it in person. And uh, when I'm trying to explain issues with forestry to people, it's so much easier if you're standing there in the forest pointing at the trees, pointing at the, the ladder fuels and the, the overstocking of the stands. It, it clicks a lot better. Uh, so that's, that's something that we need to do more as members of Congress. Nails your favorite favorite place other than the ranch. I really have a hard time tearing myself away from here. And, to, um, and my wife uh, points that out to me on a regular basis. But like day day, I, uh, I really enjoy getting out on the ocean and uh, deep sea fishing wherever I can go and get a little bit. I haven't done a lot, but I, I really enjoy that. And uh, so far as the regulations, I, I don't Certainly agree with, with Robbie and JJ. Those uh, are critical. NEPA is critical. Uh, it's uh, the wild horse issue right now. It is uh, it's critical in the areas where there's horses. 
and uh, it doesn't affect everybody. It certainly doesn't affect everybody the same, but in Gage Age country and a lot of that Southwest uh, and even parts of Wyoming, the population is so out of control and it's been mismanaged for so long that our ranges are deteriorating to the point that it's gonna, we'll never live long enough to see it uh, even start the return, let alone to get back to what we, what we knew as, as kids growing up. Uh, that's, that's a, it's a um, targeted issue, but it's a huge issue in the, in the West here and for our environments. Yeah, you know, people get very worked up about the, the wild horse issue and even the, the, the phrase wild horse that invokes this kind of romanticized idea of the West and, and people are, they just don't understand that those horses weren't native to the West. Those are in, invasive species. Uh, you know, in, in my state, we have feral hogs uh, that they were brought here by Europeans. They weren't a native, native species. And when we talk about uh, uh, ecological balance and biodiversity, when you've got an invasive uh, animal or plant there, that throws everything out of, out of kilter. So a lot of that, again, is just, uh, it's education. And that's why we like to have guests like you uh, on the podcast. You know, I wanna thank you all for being here. Thank you for the work that you do to, to feed America and to conserve our natural resources. Uh, we've been talking with Nels Hansen from Wyoming, with JJ Gorgachia from Nevada, and Robbie LaValle from uh, Colorado. And uh, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. Wish you the best and hope someday to get out and see you. Uh, God bless you all and everyone have a great day. Thank you very much.